Gig Gab, the Working Musicians Podcast, episode number 104 for Monday, February 27th, 2017. <music> Greetings, folks, and welcome. Giggab, the podcast by, for, and about working musicians here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Las Gatas, California, Paul Kent. And also here in Durham, New Hampshire, Mr. Andy Dolph. Andy, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Andy is uh, Andy is a uh, trained sound engineer, practicing sound engineer, also a lighting director yep. of sorts, uh, or maybe not even of sorts. <laughs> oh, he, he heard us stumbling over our lighting conversation. Last <laughs> he time. did. That's <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. My background is actually in production for the theater, and it's pretty typical that when you do that kind of a training program, I went through the the program at Ithaca College, and you do at least some training in all of the areas of technical theater. So I had to take a costume class and some scenic design and lighting and sound. And I specialized in sound and lighting to an extent and then sort of fell sideways into projections, which was, which is, it was at that time not an official discipline, although now it is. Sure. So that's cool. interesting to me, especially given that, um, you know, Dave is spending this time in the theater. Explain the arc of the evolution of your chops from theater sound to rock and roll sound. You know, if you can deal with sound for opera, you can do anything. Why's that? Um, because it's so technically difficult that for one thing, the music director is going to insist that it doesn't sound amplified. It's got to be completely natural and completely transparent. And to do that, I might have 20 or 30 mics in the pit another 30 or even 40 wireless on actors and plus ambient mics and having to blend all of that in a way that makes sense and that the sound system disappears is a really both technical and artistic challenge. So once you get that, then rock and roll, the only thing that's hard is that I don't listen to a lot of rock and roll. And so it's more that I need to know what it's supposed to sound like. So if I'm getting asked to mix an act, I will typically say, if I don't know their stuff, so, hey, what kind of stuff do you do? What should I listen to? You know, if they have an album, fine. Or if they don't, what kind of stuff should I listen to to get a sense of what you're going for? Huh. And once so I know what they're going for, it's usually not that hard for me to know where to go. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm uh, going to rephrase my question and ask you about like the, the, the specific differences that are now amplified instruments and miking amplified instruments. Um, bands that tend to get louder as the night go on. So, you know, the nice thing about, about those pits and, and opera, I would imagine is that it's a fairly constant sound level through the night. So oh, no. Be, oh, oh, no. I would disagree no? with that. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's in fact, um, I when I was in college, my senior project 
was the sound design and mix for a production of Little Shop of Horrors. So that's sort of in between. You know, it's musical theater, but it's a rock band. And the way we were doing it was in this sort of weird three-quarter stage. So the audience was three-quarters of the way around the stage in a U-shape. And there was no place in the room to put the band. So the band was actually about 150 feet away in the men's dressing room. Ah. And they had a video screen sure, so that they could see um, what was happening on the stage. And there were video screens in a couple of key places so that the cast could look at the screen to see the conductor for a cue. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and that, that actually happens on Broadway quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And um, although it, anywhere, it was really. not so common in those days. Sure. Um, this was a long time ago. But in any case... The whole thing went pretty well, but we were in tech and every night in tech, the finale melted down and I would get all of this crazy feedback during the finale and there was no good reason for it. And we beat our heads against the wall, like what's wrong? And we finally realized everybody just got louder and louder and louder. And I kept trying to bring the vocals up to compensate. And I was hitting a threshold that of the room, the room couldn't do it. Yeah. And fortunately, in that situation, I have complete control over the volume of the band, <laughs> which is not the case, which is, the, is right. often not the case. Right. And so it was just a matter of, OK, we've got to pull the band down a little bit at a time that it's not obvious that it's happening right before the finale number starts to leave them somewhere to go. Huh. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 would, I would agree with that. Theater pits, the, the volume yeah. changes dramatically. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the, in general, the overall volume and the amount of low frequency energy, the amount of what would typically come out of a subwoofer that you need are big differences. Um, opera can get kind of moderately loud, but it's never going to get metal band loud. Sure. Um. And, all, and the other big thing, though, is that in the opera world or the musical theater world, typically you have a longer time to work on things. Mm-hmm. It's not always the case, but generally, you know, we'll be... You've got full performances in a tech week or dress Yeah, we've got at whatever. least a week yeah. and maybe even a week and a half where we've got everybody in mics and we're doing full production often with the actors accompanied by a piano at first. And then we bring the orchestra in for the last like three, but it means you get a lot of time to finesse things. Right. Yeah. With a rock band, generally no. nothing. So I, I want to, I want to jump around a little bit. I told people last week that we were bringing you on cause I, I, or I skipped a question uh, that or sure. a, an issue that I had uh, about tuning a room, but I, I want to actually, I, I want to keep going with this path here a little bit. And so I, I kind of want to bring us back to the, the rock and roll realm and advice for musicians, individual musicians. We'll get to the tuning of the PA afterwards, but you know, we were talking about this, you know, where Paul was having trouble with his his in-ear mix, and it sounded like it was a combination of a stage volume problem and maybe a mix of the in-ears, although I think his in-ear mix is probably fine. Yeah. Um, it, you know, so what what can us, all of us, you know, drummers, guitar players, even vocalists, uh, to the extent that they can, what can we all do 
to like what, what's a good what is a good musician a, fr- a sound friendly musician look like to you how does a musician be a good citizen there you go yeah, Thanks, Paul. yeah. so the first thing is listen to your sound guy now there's a caveat on that because there are a lot of clueless sound guys in a lot of venues and so you have to make a decision about how much can you trust this person but if you've got somebody you think you can trust, and particularly if they work the room all the time, and they say, look, monitors are really hard in this room. There's, I'm thinking specifically of the Stone, Stone Church, Church yep. where there's this low ceiling over the stage, yep. and the monitors just bounce off that hard surface like crazy. Why they don't put any sort of you know, anti-reflective something on the ceiling there is another conversation to have. Yes. Uh, why the Stone Church does a lot of things has for many years <laughs> been sort of an interesting through several owners. Right. Um, but suffice to say, you get it, to a room that if the sound person knows the room, trust them. Right. And yeah. so in that room, I'm going to tell people, look, let's try to do this with nothing but vocals in the monitor. And how little can you get by with? Because that's going to make the show better. Right. Or the other choice is it depends on the band. It depends on the band. If it's fling, because I know you guys are incredibly good at turning down amps and keeping them really soft, in which case I'm much more open to saying, no, keep the amps really soft. And if you need a little more of them, we'll give it to you in the monitor. Sure. Sure. But if you are working with most bands where getting people to turn down is really hard. Um, That'd be me. You know, (laughs) so that'd be me. (laughs) So for, so for people like you, my answer is how close can I get the guitar amp to your head? Mm. Huh? And aim it, tilt it back and aim it at your head. So that it can feel as loud as you need it to feel to do your show and for it to feel good to you. But putting out the smallest amount of energy in the stage volume that we can get away with. That makes sense. Okay. So is um, one thing that I always listen for, and I mentioned this in the last show, certainly as a drummer, but, but to anybody's instruments is like... You can't just go. I feel like you can't go into a room and and just go with the EQ that works in your bedroom on on whatever the instrument is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I start flat in every new room. Um, But I'm I'm not talking about a a PA, which we'll get to. But I'm I'm talking about like, you know, a a guitar amp or a snare drum even. Oh, yeah. 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 The, the, The tonal balance in general of both the instrument and the EQ on the channel in the console. Yep. Um, you know, you may know that you typically like this kind of EQ, but in this room, that may or may not make sense. And I actually really like to EQ with microphone choice. If you have the luxury of the budget for a decent collection of microphones, like more than what you need to set up the band, sure. then I will swap microphones often at soundcheck. I'll swap a couple of things out. And and either because I think that a, the sound of a particular microphone is going to enhance a particular performer if I don't know, if I haven't heard them before. Sure. And this is particularly true of singers. 
that with a lead singer that I haven't worked with before, I'll typically have two, three, four possible microphones. And I'll take a guess about where I'm going to start. And then if I don't like it, it's in. I, if I don't like it, it's sound check. I'll try something else. Um, so, how, hey, hey, and I, again, I'm, I just want to kind of bring yeah. it. This is, this is great theoretical stuff, but, but I kind of want to give our listeners like a, the practical side of this. So, mm-hmm. you know, one, the, one lesson is if the engineer wants to try some different microphones, mm-hmm. it, let them, you know. Yeah, but, and experiment with yourself. Whenever, you know, if you're playing a gig with somebody you don't normally play with and they've got a different vocal mic than yours – if you have time at soundcheck, ask to swap vocal mics and just see what it's like. Sure. Because you may find something that you love. Um, this is a little bit less true now than it used to be in terms of my wanting to play with vocal mics because they've gotten so much better that there are some really wonderful microphones. Sort of there. universal yeah, microphones. Not, not, nec- not so, I- but... But more universal. All right. So, what what are your if you had to if you had if you didn't know a band and they said, look, we're you know let, let's describe Paul's band because you know what I yeah, use, so I'm a, yeah, I'm yeah. the wrong guy. So, uh, Paul and I, I think Andy from listening to the show knows yeah. knows your band, but but yeah. give give a, give Andy a description of how you would describe your band, and then let's see what Andy would recommend for vocal mics. Ten piece rock and soul band, five piece horn section, two trumpets. So three three brass, two trumpets, uh, trombone, and and two reeds, baritone sax, and um, and a tenor alto sax. Tenor alto sax player occasionally plays flute. He'll come up to a vocal mic for his for his flute stuff. Um, we have um, let's see, one, two, three, four. Of the people are on wireless in ears. Um, uh, all five horns are on wireless mics. Uh, two, both guitar players are on wireless uh, guitar rigs. Um, we are very high energy. We um, so you yeah. can, you can stop there, Paul, because really the key things are it's a complicated, dense sound. Yep, and it's high energy, which is going to mean loud. It's going to be a loud stage. So those are kind of the two the two key issues. So what that tells me is that you're going to want a mic with a lot of definition and that's dynamic. You're going to vocal want mic? a dynamic vocal mic. Oh, all right. So let me also say, yeah, we, uh, so I want to tell you Bill's history with us. So Bill started with, Bill's our sound guy. Mm-hmm. Bill started with us and uh, he started uh, uh, with us as a guy to just basically his he had one job when we started and that was to try and keep feedback from happening. He mm-hmm. didn't. He, he didn't have musicians' ears. He didn't have experience. Sure. You know, we basically got him in front of a in front of a desk, and and you know, kind of Nick, who is is a uh, trained in, in sound reinforcement. You know, kind of studied him and um, helped him get to that. Over the years, <clears throat> fifteen years, <clears throat> um, Bill has gotten his chops are, are really good, um, and uh, so you know he manages our sound for us. Uh, we made a decision in order to simplify things is that we all use uh, beta 58s for um, for sound for for vocals. So it's a flat response from everybody. That's that. So that was one decision we made. And actually, before before I uh, go down this path, I should ask you, is doing sound art or science? 
Yes. <laughs> you only get to choose one. It, I can't. It's equal parts both to do it well. All because, right. And, and here, here's, here's why I asked that. Okay. Go ahead. If, if, go ahead. You, if you can't get the technical parts of it right, you're dead in the water. But if you so don't. So the science isn't sound, you don't have a chance to, to apply the art. That's my feeling. All right. That, fair enough. But if you really want it to work, your sound engineer is a member of your band. Absolutely. Who, who plays the PA. Mm. Um, because they're really controlling what the band sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So it really is both. And right. So the reason I ask this question is I want to be a little bit cautious here that I don't want to lead down the path of your whatever advice you're about to give or whatever, you know, it may be different than than the internal decisions we made for sometimes we not we sound pretty good most of the time. I would say that oh, yeah. we, tend to, we tend to get too loud. And if I was to say anything, you know, if there's one thing that we could probably use a doctor for um, later in club gate, actually I'll jump right to that at club dates. We sound great starting out and we often sound great throughout the event. But one recurring interesting problem is as the club fills up and the energy is going and the testosterone is flying and the volume is getting up, we tend to get a weird feedback issue coming from our kick drum. Consistently, the kick drum is the center of problems that we have on stage. So I didn't want to lead you down the road to kind of like second guessing the things that we had done. Sure. And I certainly want to hear the rest of what you were going to say about, about you. it would be interesting to hear your approach to, to our band. But in terms of like, we're not broken. So no. I want to be cautious about that. No, you guys, oh, yeah, you guys yeah. sound good live. So, yeah. And here's what I'll say to a great extent. Gear is irrelevant. Now, we may spend the rest of the show talking about it <laughs> because you can do you can, it can make a big difference, but the guy whose ears or woman whose ears is making the decisions about what knobs to turn is the single greatest determining factor that it's being able to hear and know from what you're hearing, what you can do something about or not, and what thing to do about it, that I can get often pretty decent sound out of pretty crummy equipment because I've been doing it for a long time mm -hmm. and I've developed, you've learned the tricks, you know, in the same way that I suspect, Paul, I could hand you a really crummy hundred dollar guitar and it would sound way better in your hands than it does in mine. Cause I can't play the guitar. Huh. Um, you know, I'm a really crummy guitar player. So it, it's, it's the same it's the I, same I can thing. take a $5,000 guitar and make it sound like crap. Oh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, I'm, I'll take your band as a theoretical, but I'm not actually necessarily saying that it's what you should do. You know, Duke Ellington said something really important. If it sounds good, it is good. <laughs> yeah. And I really, that's, that's the t-shirt. I think that's a super useful concept. You know, if you're so I hate beta 58s because I just don't like the way they sound to me. They're mid rangey and the low mids are super muddy and it drives me crazy. Um, so I, I hate them and I just don't use them. Now, lots of people use them and lots of people get good sound out of them. Um, 
so yeah, I don't like it. I'm working against them every time. Mm-hmm. But if they sound good for your band, then it's not wrong. Now, if I was going to suggest other microphones you might play with, I, the first place I would go is the the Telefunken M80 or M81. I think 81. It's it, 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 it's a slightly different um, yeah. uh, EQ pattern on yeah, the M81. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That I would think about playing with those. They're dynamic, um, and but they're voiced in a way that they're more responsive than um, than something like an SM58, which is really or a Beta 58, which is an older design. Um, it's that actually the materials they use to build those capsules are different. And so they can be more responsive. Um, the other place you could go in general, the two dynamic mics I tend to point people to go play with are the, those Telefunkens and the Heil, either the PR 22 or the PR 35. And they are all really good sounding microphones and which you're going to prefer depends on the band. Mm-hmm. The Heil can be sort of a magical solution if you want something that sounds like a condenser that has that high frequency definition of a condenser mic yeah. without the extra sensitivity and tendency for feedback of a condenser mic. So, but I've also tried them on people that I thought they were going to be great and hated them. So, you know, it's, you got to listen to it. Well, and, and as a singer, you need to experience it, too, because yes. I I I, um, I don't notice a whole lot of difference in the sound of my voice on like a PR 35 versus an M80. However, the experience of singing into that M80 is the weirdest thing in the world for me. Great on a stage that's like prone to feedback, but it feels like I'm singing. I have to sing down into a tube. It feels like the, the yeah. element is at the bottom of the capsule. It, 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 it's not. You have to almost stuff that microphone down your throat. It's a weird it thing. It is designed yeah. for people who want to put their mouth almost touching the grill. I can see that. And sure. it just, that's how it works. Yep. Now, but it's great at off-axis rejection because of right. that. Right. I mean, it, well, it, and it's great at signal to noise in general, not just off-axis. Right. Because Very true. there's yeah. this thing, and this may be the most technical thing we're going to talk about, but please stay with me on this because it, if you understand this concept, it will help you to solve a lot of pro- problems. All right. And it's a thing called the inverse square law. Oh, boy. Yep. It's not as bad as go. it sounds. So, so here's the thing you need to understand. If you get twice as far away from the microphone, if you double the distance, you get four times softer. And so what that means is if I'm one inch away from the microphone and I go to two inches away from the microphone, it's not that big a change on its own. But we're going to have to turn up further. And by turning up further, we're now going to turn up all of the background noise and the potential for feedback. So one of the most frustrating things to me as a sound engineer, particularly with vocalists, but with other players too, is if they start to hear feedback, they get further away from the mic because they think they're doing something to cause it, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. 
Isn't that interesting? I never, I, 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 I hadn't known the name inverse square law. I, I do understand the geometric nature of, of the distance uh, when it comes to signal and noise and all of that. Um, but I never thought about it in relation to backing off of the mic when you hear feedback. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it's a natural you, reaction. It, it's absolutely a natural reaction. Yeah. And if you've got a sound engineer who's operating the console, when they hear feedback, they're going to know they need to start turning things down. The closer you are to the mic, hmm. the hotter your signal is going to be. Totally and therefore, sense. the more room they have to turn things down. So in general, the closer you can mic things and get a good quality of sound, the less problems you're going to have with feedback, which is why the M80s are so amazing at that. Right. Because you've got to work them close. You, you, yeah, you don't have a choice. Um, but by doing that, you get something bulletproof. Now, if you're the kind of singer, and particularly a lot of the sort of storytelling, ballady kind of folk, or people who have a theater background or a jazz background, learn to work a microphone. Right. So they are really mixing themselves and controlling both volume and timbre by how far away from the mic they are. Yeah. You can't do it on an M80. No, you it can't. That's what drives me crazy about work. it. Yeah. And the difference between, for me, especially behind the kits, the difference between singing leads and harmonies, I want to be able to blend. Right. And since we do our sound so often ourselves, we're just used to blending without assistance in, in the moment. And that's a really good thing. So long as it works with the stage volume of your Co band. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah. And it may be that one answer for the house rockers, if it turns out that feedback problems, even if they seem to be from the kick drum, are actually related to vocal mics, which is possible. Huh. It's kind of hard we, we to have know. A, we have a kick drum mic. Yeah, no, I know. But it's, but it's kind of hard to know what's actually driving the problem. Um, so a couple of thoughts about why a kick drum can be a problem. The first one doesn't apply to the house rockers because I know you have a really good drummer and therefore this is taken care of. But I want to mention it so people know if you've got a drummer with a crummy kit or who doesn't know how to tune his kit so that the kick drum doesn't have obnoxious resonances in it. It's going to be real easy to get feedback at those resonances because the harder he hits that drum, the more it's going to resonate. Now. If you happen to have, that, you're right. That's not a problem with Joe. <laughs> if, if you if you happen to have a room that wants to take off with feedback at a frequency that's similar to one that the kick drum wants to resonate at, now you're dead. All right, well, let, let's back up a little bit. So I've given you the symptoms that this tends to happen later in the show. When the intensity is up, yep. you know, we're hitting harder, the room is fuller and we're playing louder and harder. Yep. And, uh, and it's just like this low, you know, rumble that comes yep. out. Now, remember, there are not a lot of stages that hold a 10 piece band and, and yep. th it is not intensely unusual that I may have, uh, he's right behind me. I may nudge his, uh, and we have a Sennheiser, is it 821, I think, um, 421, maybe 421 in the kick. I think so. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And, um, and uh, so, so those are the symptoms of the problem. And, it, and it's reasonably common. Does it go? No, re, re, reasonably often it happens for us. Does the mic go inside the kick drum? Is there a hole in the head? 
Yeah, right at the entrance to the, it doesn't lay inside. It is, it is positioned uh-huh. right at the entrance. So I would play with positioning the mic that it, you may do better with it just peeking inside the drum an inch or two, or you might do better. Like this is one of those places where quarter inch adjustments might change something uh. and it would be worth fooling around with. Um, but I suspect that what's happening, if I was going to guess, why that would happen as the energy rises, the overall volume rises, which means the kick drum needs to be louder. Yep. And as you have to lean more on the kick in the PA, there's more energy coming out of the kick drum. Remember that speakers are intended to be directional to to send the sound where you want them to go. The lower the frequency, the less directional they are. By the time you get to the subwoofer in any, so there are some ways of doing directional subwoofers, but not in a small system, not in a club size system. So you're getting as much energy coming off the back of the sub as coming off the front of the sub. And so you may just be literally hitting the limit of how loud you can get without things feeding back. So as a hack sound guy, I, I have something that you probably haven't thought about in three decades. Uh, be, well, because you would you would do this automatically, but I only learned to do this in the last year or two, probably from listening to you, mm-hmm. is that kind of stuff happens um, when, the, the, just like you said, the subs are feeding back onto the stage, but not necessarily back into the kick drum mic. Often, I found that they're feeding into the vocal mics because me as a hack sound engineer did not put a high frequency or a low frequency, a high pass filter, filter, a low frequency roll off on every single one of the vocal channels and every single one of the guitar mics, right? Because those things are all right there. And you, you know, your guitar generally doesn't make sounds below a hundred Hertz that you want to reproduce in the PA. Oh yeah. It will make those sounds, but you don't, you don't want them. But I, I mean, like I said, it was, it was Peter Hounsel. Actually, it wasn't, it wasn't, mm-hmm. he's also a trained yeah, sound yeah. engineer. And, uh, and he came and did sound for fling and we got to the end of the first set and he's like, so I made some changes and, uh, and I said, okay. And, and he went through and, and he's like, so uh, like all your vocal mics, you know, you didn't have a, a high pass filter on them. And he's like, so I brought that in. He's like, I did it on the guitars too. We had always had a decent time getting sound to work and fling that concept changed it dramatically. Oh so yeah. It's possible that, you know, I mean, Bill probably has as much sound training as I do, at least traditional, you know, schooled sound training. He may simply not know to that, that like, that's an yeah. okay thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. In general, I will high pass everything except the kick drum, the bass and playback or keys. Yeah. And I would say even maybe with the keys in a 10 piece band, I would actually high pass those too, because you probably don't need the low end from the keys with everything else. Depends on what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, and, and it generally doesn't cause a problem. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's a direct um, signal. You're not micing yeah, anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So it's, it, you know, and often if you do any real synthy sounding stuff, often there's something where, yeah, you want that sub bass thing. It going does on. something interesting down there. Yeah. So, but it's also just not 
it's not a microphone, so it's not going to cause a problem. It's, a, it's not. It's, it's irrelevant to this this and part of the discussion. It's really hard for me to emphasize adequately how much doing that can clean up the sound of almost anything. Yeah. Um, and with the advent of the digital console, the inexpensive digital console, we now will generally have a high pass available. On sometimes, every single channel. Sometimes they're called a low cut. Those are the same thing. Yep. Um, and ideally, we have a sweepable, i.e. we can choose what frequency we're rolling off at. Yeah. And generally 80 to 100 hertz is fine but if you're outside and it's windy and trying to get some of the wind out of the pa is worth giving up some of the fullness of the vocals i'll go all the way up to 200 250 particularly on a speech situation and you can get rid of a tremendous amount of the wind noise now it's gonna make it sound thin sure sure but sometimes that's an okay trade-off. You trade it off. Yeah, yeah. You got to um, clean up the mud. Yeah. Right, right. So there you go, Paul. Maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's the answer. Could be. High-pass filter. Another possibility I, would be to fool with different microphones. Um, off the top of my head, the 421, I don't think is particularly well-behaved. I've found that, that exactly what you described, Paul, with the 421 um, – it, it like the the location of the capsule in relation to the or the element in relation to the like the full head of the capsule. It, there's a lot of weird space there. So it, like like what Andy said before, putting it in further yeah. in the drum might make a huge difference. Yeah, I would huh? I would think about I would think about playing with the placement. I would think about playing with another mic mm. um, that the way I tend to do a kick drum if I have extra channels available is I will do a sure beta 91, which is a boundary mic. It's a flat piece of metal basically with a microphone in it, which goes and sits inside the drum on the pillow. And I will then do a second mic, the best quality condenser mic I can afford. My favorite is the Neumann cam One Eighty Four. For this purpose, that's about a $750 microphone. And I will put that way inside the drum, looking right at where the beater hits. Oh, yeah. And then I have two channels, one that gives me click and one that gives me thump. And I can use that to tailor the sound of of the kick drum and get... Yeah, and get the get the definition and the right amount of hit you in the chest um, without having too much of one or the other. That makes sense. It, it's it's a fiddly way of doing it. Sure, two, you, channel, you could, two channels for the kick drum is a luxury that I. That's come on, man. <laughs> you know it. It depends on the band. See, you guys are going to fill any console you run across. Because you're a 10-piece yes. band. If it's a three-piece band that has one vocalist, yeah, that's you true. know, and a guitar player, a bass player, and a drummer, then often you end up with lots of extra channels. Yeah. yeah that's um, a fair point. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know. You're, yeah, it doesn't make sense for you to run. I mean, Bill has enough stuff to set up 
anyway with the yeah. number of lines you guys run. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You yeah. also have percussion. Oh, that's right. You've got the extra little percussion setup that yeah. plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're maxed out on 24 channels. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I yeah. can believe it. Yeah. Sure. Fling gets close to the 16 that we run. Oh, yeah. And we're five people. Oh, it, yeah. You know, I, I'll add to um, uh, your inversion equation is that <clears throat> work expands to fit the space that you give it. And that applies for mic- for uh, mixer channels. Totally. Just <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and when you're going to buy a mixer, buy the biggest mixer that you can afford and are willing to carry. Yeah, because even if you don't always use the extra channels, there are times that it will get you out of trouble because then, you know, if you're if you're doing the sound and you're on a bill with an opener, for instance. And, you know, maybe you have enough channels that if they're using different amps and they're using different vocal mics, you can put them on their own channels. We have the luxury with the digital boards to create scenes, scenes for these types yep, of things. So. Yep. And you can do it that way, too, of course. Um, but it also means that, you know, oh, you're going to have somebody sit in, right? You can actually give them their own channel that mm-hmm. you can sound check for them. True. You know, so yeah. it's just and often, particularly if you're buying a 24 channel desk, the incremental cost to go to a 32 channel desk is very small. In a lot of cases, huh. not in every case. It sure. depends on the line. Yeah, yeah. But often it's a 15% kind of, yeah. you know, for 15% more, you get eight more channels that might just get you out of trouble sometime. Yeah, yeah. no, it's good stuff. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I punted on this question earlier, but I don't want to end the show without uh, getting your advice on this, because I feel like this could be something that uh, that really helps any, you know, the amateur sound person that's stuck in the role of, of doing sound for their own band or, or even helping out a, a friend's band. So uh, it and it's it's about tuning the room. Right. G- getting okay, so it- the first thing I'm going to say is that tuning a room requires a construction crew. Yes. and Probably an acoustical consultant. And it's worth saying that because there is stuff that no matter what you do on an equalizer, you will never fix yeah and so if you keep beating your head against it and no matter what you do it's not fixable it may just be not fixable well so that was so you were there friday night then hiding in the corners (laughs) no no actually i wasn't but no i know (laughs) because if you were i would have i would have asked you this in real time so i'm pretty good with uh i I use a parametric eq generally now Mm -hmm. thanks to your advice years ago because it's way easier to sweep that around and generally there's only two or three frequencies where you've got a problem in a room that's right generally so tuning a pa tuning a pa is a much better is a better way of talking about tuning the system yep um pat brown who if you really want to learn sound yep go to sin odd con dot com s y n a u d c o m c o n yep i think okay um pat brown has been teaching these classes for years they now have an online version of it this is the heavy duty technical training all right i already knew a lot about sound when i went and it was five days of my brain being completely full at the end of every day 
All right, so, so we're gonna, we're, we're, gonna, we're not even going to try to compress Synod Khan's no, five days no, no, into no, five no, minutes. No, I'm not going to. I, I just I mention it because no, if people are really interested. It's a resource. Sure. But Pat Brown, but, who teaches these classes, said something that I think is really clear. Most people, particularly doing sound for their own bands, yep. are using graphic equalizers, right? The row of yeah. the row of sliders. Yep. And they're using them to try to get rid of feedback. Right. And Pat Brown said. Filtering feedback with a graphic equalizer is like doing heart surgery with an ice cream scoop. If it's d- too wide. It's, it's just the wrong tool. Yeah. You're going to grab big swaths of stuff because the problem is people look at this graphic EQ and they think, okay, I'm going to move these knobs into this pretty smooth curve. And that's what the equalizer is doing. That's what the frequency response change is going to look like no and it isn't at all no you're changing what you were sending out in to compensate for something that's that's also true but even if you're just measuring what the equalizer itself does moving those sliders they overlap those filters overlap and different frequency different equalizers they overlap by different amounts right so what that means is if you pull down two sliders that are next to each other it's going to go way down in between them. Well, that makes sense when you say um, it that way. Yeah. All right. So let me let me yeah, paint yeah. the picture that yeah. I had. So we get to the, the club. We set up. We have a series of we use three monitors across the front and then we've got mains for the house. And uh, I don't turn on the mains first. I turn on the monitors first and I'll tell you what I do. And then you can tell me everything that's wrong with it. Um I, I, I turn on the monitors, I power up the monitor. I mean, they're all powered up, but I, mm-hmm. you know, start tuning the monitors first and I look for feedback and I almost mm-hmm. always do it with the graphic EQ. Our board has a real time analyzer on it, mm-hmm. so it makes it easier to find those little holes. But, you know, at some point you use your ears and I found it and I just couldn't get it to work. Like, I mean, it was it. it so this room was all wood except for the walls that were all glass. So it was kind of awful. Right. And we knew it going in, but it was just like, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're going to play a gig here and in like 30 minutes, you're going to start. So giddy up. Yeah. So I go through it and I go through it. And finally, I'm like, this is insane. I need more. So I go, I leave the parametric EQ wherever I had gotten it. And I went to the graphic EQ uh, on the monitor channel. And, uh, and thankfully I chose to only run one monitor channel across the front of the stage because I didn't want to have to tune three of them. And, uh, and the guys are okay with that. The one mix is usually fine. And I started, you know, pulling things on the graphic EQ and that actually started getting better. Um, it, it, it had been a long time since I'd done it with a graphic EQ, but it was like, okay, finally, I'm, I feel like I'm doing something that's productive probably because I'm, I'm doing much wider cuts, uh, of all this feedback. So I've, I'm finally starting to get it somewhere and it's not quite right. And then I sort of realized that I've scooped out pretty much everything, Right. So what you've done is use the equalizer as a volume to turn it down. Right. And I realized that. And so I zeroed everything out and I started from scratch with the knowledge of forget about the parametric for this room. You had better luck with the graphics. See if you can find the things. And so I did and it got better. And then I just copied that mix to the mains and uh, or that that EQ to the mains because in a digital board you can. And then I sort of tweaked the mains from there. They didn't need quite as much cut in some places. They needed more in others. But um, but it was never right. Like it, it was one of those gigs where and I hate starting the, the night knowing 
that I don't trust the PA to, to, to stay under control. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially and, when we don't have someone front of house. Now right. it turned out we did a friend of ours was there and I gave him the iPad. I said, do you mind? And he's like, Oh no. By the end of the night, he's like, I want to do this every gig. It's fun. Like awesome. Great. great. Right. Great. But, but it, you know, it was that kind of thing. So any advice for any band that's yeah. going through, because every gig you go through this. So the first thing is in that kind of situation, you're probably getting clusters of frequencies that want to take off. And so what you need to do, one of the things you can do on a parametric equalizer is increase the width of the filter. The Q. The Q. The, the Q it's is often called idiots Q call it. Right. Or, or, yeah. band, or bandwidth. They're sure. labeled different things on different, okay. different ports. Um, you can broaden the bandwidth of the filter. Yep. Now, you're doing more damage to the frequency response by doing that. Of course. But particularly in the monitors, it's often more important that you hack it up as much as you have to to make it okay. Yeah, of course. Then that that you get this pretty sound. This pretty yeah. nice sound. In the mains, you may have to strike a compromise and say, "Okay, we're not going to be able to run it as loud." Right. But at least it's going to be kind of smooth. Um, however, that room is a no win situation <laughs> and frankly, they should not have hired a band that needed to be amplified. Yeah. That, that kind of space, I bet chamber, they have fans every week. <laughs> I bet chamber music would sound amazing in that, put a string quartet in that room and it would probably sound amazing. Yeah. I'm sure that's not what they want, right? but it, it, it's just not reverberant reflective spaces suck for rock and roll. They suck for anything amplified. So another another thought that that came to me after mm -hmm. the gig is especially for the main the monitors you gotta deal yeah. with what you gotta deal with. Um but especially with the mains, speaker height in a room can make a big difference. Yeah. So what what are your thoughts about speaker height? In general, if you can tilt the speakers down I want them as high as they can go oh. if I can tilt them down adequately. Right. Because that's going to get me more even coverage from the front of the room to the back of the room. Now, there's a big exception to this. If you are using a Bose L1 or any of the column systems, this is a completely separate discussion that we should that we should have. Right. Because but the rules apply to some of them and not to others. Of course. And they all look the same, but what's inside is different, and so it behaves differently. And that was actually the thing we were bringing you here to talk about, but yeah. we'll have to do that again sometime. Okay, that's fine. And um, so... But what if you can't yeah. angle your speakers? If you can't angle the speakers... How far off the ceiling should somebody look? Is that the right way to approach it? I typically don't worry about the ceiling that much. Huh. Um, I, I mean... If you put it right up against the ceiling and weird things are happening, I might try it lower. Yeah. Um, in a room like that, there's a lot of guess and listen, yeah, you okay. know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, but in general, what I'm trying to avoid is having the main so low that I'm clobbering the first two rows. Yeah, sure. Because then the people behind them aren't going to get any high frequency energy. Because they're, they're, the people are acting are, as are their own high it. pass filters. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or low pass filters rather. So, um, huh. so yeah, the other thing I would say is if you have the time doing the monitors separately might've bought you something. 
I did do the monitors separately. No, no. I mean three as three mixes. Oh, yeah. I, I get that. Sure. Because in some rooms. Yeah, there's and, that one the monitor kind that's of room the problem. you're describing tends to be like that. The problems may be somewhat different between the monitors. And so you may not have to hack it up as much. Right. I, I have to go for the it, doing it the way I did it. I had to I had to, to find I had lowest to treat common denominator. lowest common denominator. Yeah, of course. And yeah. the same with the mains, particularly if the room is not symmetrical. So what I did was I put the mains together mm-hmm. so that I didn't have to worry about what what that caused over there and this caused over here. So the two mains were, st- were right. literally on a stand together. Oh, like right next to each other. Yes. Okay, then doing then then doing them with one EQ probably makes sense. Yeah. If you're doing left and right mains the way people often do, yeah. EQing them separately that makes sense. can be useful. It's yeah. often not necessary. Got and it. in general I don't. Right, I generally right. start with one EQ on the mains. Sure, unless you have a, an issue. Unless I'm in, particularly unless I'm in a room that's not symmetrical or the way I'm set up in the room is not symmetrical. Sure. And then I know, okay, I may have to treat these differently. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I, my answer to that is put both mains together. It, it, it's going to be f- much easier for all of us if we do that. Yeah, and fewer speakers, fewer problems. You got it. Fewer microphones. Fewer problems. There are there are places Few, where fewer guitar players, Paul. Fewer problems. <laughs> the, yeah, really. I resemble that remark. <laughs> there are places where um, where less is really more. Sure, I would say probably most and most clubs that that bands like like yeah, you know most of the folks that listen because you got to yeah. load in fast. You do, and the more you can systematize things. You know, well, that's a whole different discussion that, that helps too. totally that it was amazing. I did uh, an event. I was doing the lighting, uh, but they had a group called the compact big band compact oh. is in the computer company because yeah, okay. they're all engineers. Sure. And they it's a 21 piece big band that does their own sound. And they had have laid out a standard size stage setup that they always do. And they have bundled all of the cable. Every cable is labeled. It's all the right length. So they roll out for each row, one row of cables, and they're all there. Yeah. yeah. And then leave it, leave it to a bunch leave of electrical bunch engineers. engineers. Of course. Um, you know, and it's amazing how fast they can put that up. Now, oh, I bet. Yeah. When you have to troubleshoot it, it's a pain. Right. Or if you need to do something a little bit different. It's a pain. Yeah, if the room doesn't allow you to set up in your, you know, predefined way. So, Paul, any other questions for Andy before we uh, before we cut him loose here? No, we, we could do this for a week and still not get all the questions well, answered. This I is know. awesome. We need to we need to do this periodically and just get the sound guys, you know, tips on things. I wanted to do a whole walkthrough of of sound checking and uh, then lighting would be a whole great topic. So, this was awesome, Andy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It is my pleasure. Cool. All right, folks. Well, that'll, uh, I guess that does it. No, no other questions, Paul? Nothing? I'm We're good. good. Okay. Folks, thanks so much for listening. Andy, thank you so much for coming and joining us here. We definitely will have you back. And the good news is you're oh, close by, pleasure. so I can wrangle you in. Yeah, sure. It's easy. Feedback at GigGabPodcast.com is where you can send your comments to us, of course. And Facebook, GigGabPodcast.com slash Facebook. Always be performing. Have a good week. Always. Paul. Bye.